to Fucked Up by Faith. My name's Jude Mills. In this podcast, we have conversations with people who've been fucked up by their faith, and we explore how they found hope, healing, reconciliation, and forgiveness in or out of their faith tradition. My guest today is Don Lister. I'm very delighted to welcome Don onto the podcast. Dawn is a yoga teacher, mindfulness teacher, co-owner of Anahata Yoga Centre in Leon C in Essex. She is also a writer and a mother of three and she's currently writing a book about her experiences of leaving the Jehovah's Witness faith. Welcome Dawn, it's really good to see you. How are you doing? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderfully named podcast i'm so excited to chat to you yes fucked up by faith pretty much does what it says on the tin um so in this podcast we have uh, i have conversations with people who've been fucked up by their faith but really it's about healing and how you have found healing through that whole process and i'm really really interested interested to hear your your story um before we begin our conversation i'd like to read a poem And this poem is by Mary Oliver, and it's called Praying. Mm. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. Hmm. It's beautiful. Hmm. I haven't heard, I've just recently um, been given a book of her poetry and I haven't come across that one yet. Yeah, it's it's wonderful poetry. And uh, yeah, a real gift, I think, to those of us who teach mindfulness because it Many of her poems perfectly describe mindfulness without us getting into that kind of jumble of words <laughs> about it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, Dawn, tell me how you've been fucked up by your faith. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, that would have been hysterical laughter. Yes. No longer, thankfully, Mm. no longer hysterical laughter. So, yeah, it's a long story because I'm now 50. And um, I would say that whilst the faith of the Jehovah's Witnesses um, fucked me up for many years, actually the process of unlearning so much of what I learned has been a gift. So we're in a whole different Mm. place. But let's yeah. begin at the beginning, I guess. Let's begin. So my parents were Protestant and Catholic when they met and both came from quite traumatic backgrounds themselves, which are, are their stories. So I won't go into those um, and ended up being um, witness to, as the witnesses call it, on their doorstep when I was one years old. And my dad was away in the merchant navy and my mum was on her own and really struggling and very lonely very lonely um and so the witnesses came and rapped on the door and uh were very sweet and kind to her and uh they love bombed they did a really good job on her yeah. and uh, and they converted she converted 
And over a period of the next five, four or five years, she fully, they fully converted and lost, really lost all their family. So, you know, because once you become a witness, as in many cults, it's uh, you associate only with other witnesses. You don't have friendships outside of the faith um, mm -hmm. because they would be considered worldly or bad associates people that were going to lead you down a path to death and destruction. And they mean that in a literal sense. Yeah. So yeah, the witnesses are, they take the Bible in a very literal way. If it says something, it means exactly that. There's no interpretation. Um, so the, um, the two, two very vulnerable people caught in a very dark faith. And that's kind of how we grew up. We grew up, me and my two brothers and a sister grew up in a um, very poor part of Edinburgh. We were quite a poor family. We didn't have a lot a lot going on financially. We, my parents really struggled, bless them. Mm. And um, the faith was everything, you know? We, we literally lived for the day when the new system was gonna come. So Jehovah's Witnesses call it the new system. And that's the day or the time where uh, all of you people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses are gonna get destroyed by god's avenging angels so god's avenging angels are going to come down with their fiery horses and big swords and chop you all up and uh literally and we, and we okay. will survive so is this a version of what happens in the book of revelation yeah okay but so they they, they believe that to be a literal thing yeah. that's going to happen okay yeah so the um they, and they, so they believe that's what's going to happen. So they were like, as we were growing up, okay, we don't have this and you don't have that and you can't go here and you can't see friends and you can't be in the school clubs and you can't have a boyfriend and you can't really go to university or anything like that because the end of the world's going to come at any moment and your time and energy should be spent converting as many people as possible to become witnesses. Mm -hmm. And and really, I mean, my one of my earliest memories is being must have been about four or five just sitting on a grass with my brother and we were making daisy chains and i remember looking at him and i was really i always really felt very protective of my brothers and sisters because i was the eldest and thinking looking at the flats all around us because you lived in this these blocks of flats and thinking everybody except us is going to be dead soon mm. and i must have been four four or five at the tops because i hadn't started school and just when i think back now i think that's so dark a little kid mm -hmm. who knew that everybody around her was going to die. And, and so I, and I really believe that. I re, I 100% believe that. And actually 100% believe that until I was in my mid-20s. And um, so I then tried to convert everybody I met at any time in every given moment. I was like a zealot, even from you know, any opportunity. I can't come to your birthday party and this is why. And here have this leaflet and let me show you the scripture. And please don't die. I don't want to lose you. And, you know, being at absolutely petrified constantly yeah. that you know every everybody I loved and cared for was not going to make it into this wonderful new world um so that was kind of how my childhood went and I kind of I really took it on board like massively took it on board I'd come home from school and as soon as I was allowed to go out on my own at about 13 I'd get changed out of my school clothes and in my preaching clothes and my little briefcase and I'd wander off around the neighborhood selling the watchtower trying to convert everybody because I didn't want anyone to die you know and 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 then 
in amongst all that, the indoctrination that happens to you as a person, not only was I trying to save everybody, I was absolutely petrified to have a bad thought, to not want to go knocking on doors, not want to study, answer my parents back, um, you know, anything, have friends who weren't witnesses, you know, explore myself as a human being as I grew, be interested in fashion and music or you know, anything like that, because according to well, my parents and the witnesses, God's reading your mind all the time. So I was constantly, permanently feeling guilty. If I had bad thoughts, I was impure and I'd, lie, I'd sit in the bath at the end of the day praying, literally praying and praying and praying and saying, oh, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I'll do better tomorrow. <laughs> when I look back now, I mean, I can laugh about it. I spent years in therapy trying not to, you know, to unpick that damage of just not being good enough, never being good enough. Hmm. Horrific, absolutely horrific, absolutely horrific. So was there any way that, so presumably the, the that you trying to not have bad thoughts or to do anything which, which was considered worldly or bad. So was the, was the belief that uh, these things were sinful and that then God would judge you for these things mm-hmm. um, and was there any way to make up so atone make up for those mm-hmm. sinful thoughts or actions within the faith yeah absolutely so so God was listening and we were all we were all born imperfect and sinners so we were already born in deficit as it were and then everything we did that wasn't towards praising God, Jehovah, um, was or or that was aligning ourselves to Satan, so non-Jehovah's Witness anything, um, was going to put us further into deficit, into sin. And the only way you could redeem yourself was through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ where he died. And so, we, and we couldn't speak to God directly because we were too sinful, so we had to pray to God via Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, pray to Jesus, he would take our, and we'd admit our sins. And then he would take our sins to God and we would be absolved if we were definitely sorry. Um, And as children, we were told we had to take that to our parents first, because until we were baptized ourselves, we weren't even supposed to really do that because we didn't have this connection to Jesus. So I would have to tell my parents if I'd done something or thought something or sworn or I don't know, cheated underlining my watchtower or not eating all my dinner or anything, anything, you name it. I felt guilty for breathing some days, you know, literally. Hmm. There was nothing I could do that was ever going to be good enough. But but worse than the sinning for me, and it was different for everybody, but for me was the feeling that everybody around me is going to die. And yes. I can't I just got to save them. I just even talking about it now, I can I don't feel that way anymore. But the panic it was in me every moment of every day that any moment these avenging angels were going to come and kill everybody it was you know it was Mm. response and that was a responsibility that i then carried through my life for a very long time this need to rescue people yes you know really started early didn't it when you were four sitting thinking all these people are going to die Yeah. yeah yeah I have, um, there's another very vivid memory for a few years later, because so I must have been, I don't know, early, early teens, maybe, maybe a little bit younger. And we were all sitting on the sofa, my bro- and I vividly remember it, we had this great big red leather sofa, and we'd all sit on it. 
in a line all four of us while my dad was teaching because basically you went to church five times a week or kingdom hall as they call it you did the ministry as many times as you could and then in between those times you had to prepare for your meetings so if you had a meeting on a thursday or wednesday night you'd prepare for thursday and it went on like mm -hmm. so and my dad was teaching us about armageddon so armageddon is the day when the angels come to kill everybody and before that there's a period of time called the great tribulation which is an unspecified amount of time where all the worldly people realize that Jehovah's Witnesses have got it right and they're going to massacre us before the angels get there to massacre them. So he, he decided in his wisdom, my dad, that he was going to prepare us all for this great tribulation. So he was saying to us, you know, if you hear the bad people take your mom into another room and rape her, you must not say you don't love Jehovah because that's what they want you to say. She Even if she's being raped, it's okay. If you see them kill us you must not say you don't love jehovah because if you do you'll never see us again because then you will have failed the test mm -hmm. if they torture you you must not say you don't love jehovah and i, and I remember i remember really saying well how are they going to torture us we're children and they said well they might pull your fingernails out or your toenails out and i just remember looking at my little sister she was only tiny she was a little squishy little thing I was thinking, I was the panic. I was like, oh my God. And I was, I remember thinking, right, we're in a flat, like really tiny flat. Where can I hide her? Like what's, what? maybe I could put her inside the sofa or the trauma mm -hmm. of hearing things like that as a child was so impactful on yeah. me and all of my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to be really honest. Not all Jehovah's Witness parents are that dark. You know, some of them, don't even believe some of what they hear. They believe bits of it and not all of it. And they don't all try to terrify their children into submission. For, for, from years down the line, I look back, my parents weren't trying to be cruel. I know that sounds a bit mad to anybody that's maybe listening it. They were afraid. They were frightened themselves. They were terrified and still are. Um, and therefore that was how they knew to keep us safe by scaring us because for them if I was scared enough I wouldn't leave yeah and if I wouldn't leave I'd be with them in paradise mm -hmm. so that was that was the the reason that they behaved in the way that they did to all of us as they were growing up they were incredible they were just so so strict and then the congregation that we happen to be in and each congregation is slightly different depends on the kind of team of elders that are running the congregation be very very different from one place to another our team were just so strict you know they were like you shouldn't have a telly dancing's immoral get your pop star pictures off the wall you know your kids shouldn't be in after school clubs why would you want to put energy into reading fiction that you know uh tvs and all of it you know they just they just wanted us to put all of our energy into faith 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 and whether that was about putting money in the coffers or whether it came from a good place and they were just dark, I really don't know and honestly don't care anymore. Um, but that was that was our experience. You know, it was it was a very, very heavy, sad and lonely time. It was I was I remember just being afraid and lonely hmm. and, and deeply unworthy for all of my all of my life until I was probably in my 30s. It's like I wasn't good enough. I hadn't saved enough people. Thank God I never converted anybody. Could you imagine? I'd have the guilt to that to add to it all. 
you have to wait you feel you have to go back around and unconvert them <laughs> oh, sending letters saying it's all a lie don't do it <laughs> so was this was there a point then obviously there was because we wouldn't be sitting having this conversation but so what was the point where you or was it a series of points where you thought hmm this might not be the truth you know no well yes and no because i did still believed when i left i i got to the point when i was in my late teens i got very very anorexic i was very ill understandably um and as i started to have a little bit of therapy which was really hard fought for because we weren't allowed therapy because you're not allowed to think outside of the outside of the jehovah's witness box i didn't stay in therapy for very long but it was enough to just start making my brain think in a slightly different way. And then I went, left school at 16 and went straight to work and pioneering. So that's where you go around the doors, knocking on the doors for trying to get lots of people to convert for an X number of hours per month. Pioneer does 60, 90 or 120 hours. And you do it voluntarily. And then you have a little part-time job to support you. Mm-hmm. And when I went into that part-time job, it was the first time I had met worldly people outside of school. Mm-hmm. Ever. And I remember standing on the staircase coming down from, I was working in this restaurant and my boss was coming up and he stopped on the stairs. He said, oh, you're doing so well. Everybody really loves you. We're all going for a drink later. Really nice if you could come. And I just burst into tears. And he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. And I couldn't tell him what I was feeling, which was, you're all nice. Yes. <laughs> you're nice. I thought you were all horrible, like, prostitutes and drug addicts and just out you know to get what you want from people and you're all having sex everywhere and you know that's kind of what we've been told and these were just the nicest much nicer than the people I was hanging around with in the church so caring and interesting and mm. up and I was like oh my god and I and the more people I met the more I thought you know what even if I'm dead in a year I want to spend the next year with you lot and so <laughs> I left. I left when I was about 18 mm-hmm. and I left because I just wanted to have a laugh and have some fun. I wanted to just live. I thought, God, if I'd rather be dead than be with you lot for eternity. You know, because that's what the witnesses believe. They're going to live forever. They're going to hit about 30, perfect maturity and then live forever and mm-hmm. on the paradise in the new world. And <laughs> I was just like, I'd rather be dead. I don't want to be with you lot. So, and, that, and that was the truth. And it was really hard because I then went on to have various very dysfunctional relationships with lots of inappropriate people because I didn't know how to keep myself safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and I'd fluctuate to being in these really inappropriate relationships and panicking like crap that every time something on the news happened, like there was a war or an earthquake or a tsunami, I was like, oh my God, that's it. You know, I'm yep. going to die. And so when I was about 20, I went back for a year, mm-hmm. maybe two, I can't remember. I went back, but out of pure panic, I moved to London. I got a nanny job, a really cool family. And, <laughs> and then went back to the church and that church, that church was really cool. They partied, they knew how to have fun. And um, they were much more open. I had a really good experience with that congregation, actually, which was good because I now saw that not all Jehovah's Witnesses were completely mental. You might believe mental things, but they weren't all mental. Um, so, but in the end, I was just like, 
I still don't want to be in this though, because if you're a woman inside the Jehovah's Witness organization, you are worse than dog shit on your show. Like you're not allowed to speak directly to the congregation. You're not allowed to lead anything in prayer. You're not allowed to lead a meeting. You're not allowed to make decisions about anything. Everything is men down. I mean, even to the point if a 12 year old boy was standing next to me and he was a baptized person, um, he would he would be my superior. And I had to yeah. do what he said. You know, just yeah. ridiculous, really. So I just felt so suffocated. And I came to it and I thought, you know what? Even if they are right. I still would rather be dead than be in this. So I left again. And it really wasn't until I got into proper therapy in my 30s that I stopped believing, believing. So when you say, was there a moment? The moment was, I'm suffocating. I literally felt like I was mm-hmm. drowning under the weight of judgment. I mean, I'm quite, a, I'm quite, an, well, I'm quite um, a person that likes to speak. I like to share my opinion. I'm curious about everything. I like to understand why something's happening. That was my my main question throughout the whole of my life growing up was why, but why? But why do we have to do that? Why why did Jesus have to die? And what why does why can't a woman stand up and speak to the congregation? Mm-hmm. And and I was forever being counseled about asking too many questions. And I needed to learn to just develop some faith. And I was like, but I just don't get it. I just you need to explain it to me. If you can explain it to me, I'll believe you. Yeah. just wrong and no one could and and it and it was the finger was always pointed back to me that it's your fault because you have no faith yeah no no one could ever back anything up because of course there there's no way to back it up because it's incorrect as i now understand it's not based on anything other than you know trying to keep people keep people terrified and keep them locked in a, a faith that really is just about making money it's just a huge publishing company you know when you do the research, which I did do a little bit of research over a few years um, when I went through my research and rage phase. Um, I I learned a huge amount about kind of the darkness that sits at the heart of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and um, in the end, chose not to keep looking because I just thought this isn't helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it, it does seem to be part of the the necessary therapeutic process, though, doesn't it? In leaving what you've described to be a sort of a cult or a cult-like organization is is to understand the mm. process or the mm. processes or the or the techniques that they use in order to to help to understand how you're how, how you were caught in it mm. um, and then there comes a point at which maybe that's not necessary for you your mm. well-being anymore but um so i i mean i I know a little bit about this this organisation, and and like you, I think I watched that the that BBC drama apostasy. Did you see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in in that, I mean, it was heartbreaking. But um, the depiction in that was when the the young woman uh, wants to have a more worldly. I'm using quote marks. Life. Um, she is forced to leave she's forced to leave the organization but more importantly perhaps is that her mother is forced to not see her again and and did that happen to you so i i was a bit clever so i i did something called fading so fading is when you go to a meeting and you miss a meeting and you go to two and you miss three and i did that for about six months and they kind of guessed what i was doing and started harassing me in my workplace but 
in the end, I had I wasn't doing anything wrong, as in a court, I wasn't getting drunk, I wasn't sleeping around, wasn't gambling, I wasn't behaving in a way that could discredit the Jehovah's Witness organization. I just wasn't present. So I snuck off and eventually fell under the radar so that they could they can only excommunicate you and they call it disfellowshipping, if you are doing something which brings the name of the witnesses into disrepute. If you're away for long enough without anybody, so that people don't associate you as being a witness anymore, then they can't really do that in retrospect. Okay. That didn't happen to me, but it did happen to my sister. And it happened to her when she was quite young. She was only 17. Hmm. So when she was 17, she decided to leave. She moved into a flat at 17. And... Um, she was on her own and um and she didn't fade she's far too um what's the word i would use free-spirited she wasn't gonna keep it quiet from anybody and she just told everybody what she was up to which was exactly what you'd imagine a 17 year old girl who'd never been allowed to do anything would be up to mm -hmm. everything <laughs> all, all the things everything, everything you could ever do she was gonna try it with bells on mm -hmm. and the or got and they excommunicated her, which meant instantly my parents were no longer allowed to talk to her, mm -hmm. have her in their home, um, go out for dinner, um, keep in touch, ring her, nothing. It, it ended at 17. And you can imagine what that, I mean, a 17-year-old's brain hasn't even fully developed yet. No. You know, she'd been already traumatized by 17 years of horrific emotional and physical abuse. There was a lot of physical abuse in our family. And then um, to leave and be completely on your at 17 with no life skills whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so she was shunned. She was she was shunned and, and still and still continues to be to this day. Mm -hmm. That's so happy it has it has been tough. There have been moments where my parents have had contact with her for brief times when she got pregnant. They kind of made um, a little bit of an allowance and they kind of helped her get her flat in order and so on, but then kept that secret from the Jehovah's Witnesses that they were doing that because if the Jehovah's Witnesses had known that they'd been doing that they would have um both been got into an awful lot of trouble hmm. so um but as soon as she was kind of set up it stopped again and now there's no there is no contact so I, I made the decision about eight or nine years ago when the um they were still sort of seeing me here and there coming to visit once in a while to see me and my kids and I said, you know what? I'm living with a man. I've got kids and we're not married. You come and see me. My sister's married. She's got kids, like morally, if you're going to mm -hmm. get into that, she's in a different place than I am. I can't really see what the problem is. And they said to me, we love God more than you. We always will. And if you can't deal with that, we've got a problem. So I said, <laughs> I need you to treat you, my sister, the way you treat me as a bare minimum and if you can't do that then maybe we shouldn't have contact and and we haven't spoken since so that's been mm. about eight years now so mm. so effectively there's kind of a bit of reverse shunning going on there um i don't know I, on a daily basis i genuinely don't know if i've done the right thing mm -hmm. but i think it was the right thing for my sister because someone has a back finally you know, she's got someone that's saying this isn't okay and I'm not going to be complicit in that kind of behaviour. I'm not going to be part of that. Um, and I think that's helped her a little bit. Mm. 
but yeah, so these they absolutely do, Sean. And the their their latest conventions have been um, full of instructional videos on how to shun your family more effectively. <laughs> so they've embraced technology and oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, family shunning <laughs> instructions. Oh dear, yeah. Fifteen ways to shun your family better. <laughs> mm. It's just so dark. You just think, how do, and you look back and you think, I kind of don't think about this for myself because I was a kid. But I, I look back and think, how can any sane adult be in that and think any of it's okay mm. on any level? It's just, yeah, dark, very dark. Yeah. So, having said all of that, here mm. you are. Yeah. Um, well, and happy and yeah. thriving in with your own business and uh, what what led you to uh, sort of taking up this new way of being what mm. was the healing process well you know it was a really long one because i think once i left there was this it was like a vacuum inside me, like this great big empty hole. Mm -hmm. Because I'd, my whole life was hinged around meetings and service and study and prayer. And that left, and probably for about a year and a half, alcohol sat in the way. Mm -hmm. I drank a lot. Um, did a bit of smoking of uh, weed and so on. And had lots of boyfriends. Mm -hmm. um, distracted myself in the way that most people would. And then I kind of, I never enjoyed any of it. It really wasn't me. Um, I think it was more a sign of a state of rebellion than actually anything else. So I started looking for some other faith because I had a faith. I was like, there is a God. There absolutely is a God. Um, I just need to find the right God um, because their God's like not good. It's dark. It's evil. You know, I kind of got that much. So I, I fell upon, by accident, a Buddhist school in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. I started going along to this incredible Buddhist school. You know, they didn't actually do a huge amount of teaching, to be honest. We just used to meditate. And I'd go and do meditation in the afternoons and the weekly meditation group. And then eventually on retreats and stuff. And then I moved to London, went back to the witnesses. And then when I came out of the witnesses, went back into a Buddhist tradition in London. And kind of carried on with that tradition throughout mm -hmm. most of my life um i found a sense of great peace there mm -hmm. um, i found a sense of um spaciousness i i i felt like um i felt nobody was asking me to believe anything mm. nobody was telling me this is just how it is it very much felt like i was being given um, tools to understand myself better obviously there were as time went on there were more teachings around karma or dharma etc etc there were lots of um, much more in-depth teachings and eventually I went on to teach for um, the Kadampa tradition over in, in seven or eight years ago maybe a bit longer um, and that that kind of the, the 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 buddhist practice was what was the beginning of the healing because it made me start to think about things in a different way yeah i had to i had to, i couldn't just take things at face value i had to look at how i was feeling in the moment so it all became about me and my 
moment to moment experience. And I remember for years and years and years, I was just, uh, the words kept coming up, just let go. Because that's what we're told, isn't it? Let go of your breath, mm-hmm. let go of your thought, let go of that belief system. Just keep letting going and seeing what's, what's showing up for you right now. What's your truth? I never got it. I never got it. It drove me nuts. And I became obsessed with letting go. And I was like, well, I don't know how to let go because all I feel is rage um, and anger. And I, I can't let go because if I let go, then it's all right. And actually, it's not all right because what has happened to me and my family is not okay. So it was kind of very much like a push and pull for me. Buddhism gave me this nice little safe place in the moment when I was meditating. I stepped away from it. I just felt bad as ever. It was dreadful. Um, so I went into therapy and had a series of incredible therapists over the years, worked with psychologists, just amazing people. Um, and every person that I worked with just helped me pull back another layer. You know, they mm. really just helped me just to see there was no judgment. There was no, your parents are awful. Um, they were wrong. It was just, it, I was, I've been very fortunate. I've been with people who just met me where I was in that moment. Yes. So I learned how to be with what was my experience. And, and, for, and for a long time, I was just angry. Yeah. And nobody told me to stop being angry. Like, don't stop. That's not, that's with your truth. That's okay. Be, be angry, feel angry. And, you know, what does that feel like in your body? You know, I was like, I was, I didn't even, I couldn't even begin to understand that. I was so disassociated from myself. Mm-hmm. I was completely in my head. I was a manic overworker. Um, I was always trying to fix, still trying to fix everybody. I think I'm trained in about 25 different techniques because I was always on a training course. And it was just that where I had to go through the stages of grief. And it wasn't probably until I was about 45 that I realized that's what I'd been doing. So I went through, you know, anger, rage, fear, bargaining, you know, all of it until eventually, eventually, eventually. And it was only through all the building blocks of the embodied practice of yoga. So learning to be in my body, mm-hmm. learning to notice what I was feeling, learning to learning to respect that. Like, you know what? You feel really tight and angry and your body's holding on to whatever it happened to be holding on. It might have been weight it might have been stress it might have been like be with that like nurture that that's Mm. your truth right now so I learned about that I learned about how to nurture myself and look after myself and only once I'd learned how to do that for myself could I begin to forgive yes I couldn't even begin to forgive because I was too angry Mm -hmm. and once the anger had dissipated what came up instead was wisdom and in that wisdom space, I was, I saw it for what it was. So I stopped seeing that my parents were evil, that they'd brutalized us, that they'd ruined our lives. And that because of them, we were all in these really dysfunctional relationships. We didn't know how to be with ourselves. What I saw instead in that wisdom space was, ah, they're also suffering. Yes. They're suffering. And in that, and then I literally, I could tell you, I literally fell away. All the anger fell away, all the hate, all the resentment, all that I wish it had been different. That didn't even exist anymore. It's like it had never been. Mm. Just like somebody chipping off paint, it just disappeared. Not all at once, bit by bit by bit, until it's not there anymore. And it really isn't there anymore. And it was, it was just this incredible spaciousness. And it was just amazing because then for the, probably the first time in my life, 
I loved my parents. I loved them. Yes. And I never had, not even as a little girl. I probably liked them or was codependent on them. I needed them. I was mostly just afraid of them. Yeah. Terrified. It's very difficult for love to be expressed when the overriding feeling is fear. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I could see that, you know, I could just, as everything fell away and wisdom arose, I just saw all I saw was love. And that was the only thing that was present. And so what then emerged from there was I continue with my practice. I continue with the practice of surrender. So what came up instead of I need to let go was I surrender to what is. Yeah. And that I would say is my true practice. You know, uh, I, what, what's true today is I feel X. This is how my body is. This is where my energy is. This is the, the, what's going on in my head. I surrender to the truth of that because it's here. It's present. I can't be other than what I am. Mm-hmm. And any time I try to be other than what I am, I get myself in a place of suffering. And then that causes a sense of shutdown. And then your old coping strategies come up. And, you know, it's not good for anybody, me included. Um, so I just surrender. And in that surrender, your wisdom comes up and you're like, okay, so you're tight. What do you need to do? Probably have a nap or go for a walk or mm. eat delicious food. Or do you need, I don't know, do you need to go to the gym? Do you need to have a conversation with somebody? But I have a really healthy relationship with my experience and my, my being, and I don't hate anymore. There's no, <laughs> I just feel sad sometimes, you know, I yes. feel some days I just feel, I feel a bit sad today. I've had to talk about this today. And then this past week, I've had lots of conversations around this stuff. Mm. And it's, that makes me feel sad, but not in that kind of all-consuming sadness that could have one time tipped me over the edge into pure rage. So, yeah. I don't know. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. So you did, you mentioned that when you left the faith that you still believed in God Mm. not their version of God but Mm. the God and what you're describing now is this over over overriding sense of love and Mm. I'm just wondering if that's what God means to you now yeah yeah you know I had a really interesting experience a couple of years ago if we've got time for me to share this I don't know the um is the surrender practice so that's been my practice for a really long time and my husband and I were away at a football match weirdly abroad somewhere and there's a whole group of us gone and they'd all gone off boozing and I'm not really a boozer so I decided to leave the boozer the boozer the pub and make my way back to the hotel to just chill out so as I left the boozer I felt an overwhelming feeling of sadness because there was lots of stuff going on in our life at that time. We had stuff going on at home with the kids. It was very stressful. Um, Stuff going on with my parents and family. It was a lot of things going on. I was quite sad. I was just sad. And in that moment, I I felt this sadness come up and I had an urge to push it down. Hmm. I didn't let myself. I just said to myself, just feel it. It's okay. And a little tear came down my cheek and the tears feel so significant. I have no idea why. And in that moment, as I surrendered to this tear, the world fell away. Like everything fell away. Mm-hmm. I fell away. Everything around me, there was nothing. There was, there was just love. Mm. I, was, I was 
in a tree, in a cloud, in Mars, in the ground, in the earth, in the sea. Mm -hmm. I was everywhere. But, but everywhere was nowhere because nothing existed in a sense of form. It was just energy. Yeah. I can't even explain it better than that. This, it changed my life in that moment. Like completely, I'd already had a feeling of understanding conceptually and this lovely feeling of wisdom and spaciousness. But I'd not had that feeling of being so connected. Mm -hmm. And that is God for me. That is God. And I knew I suddenly for the first time could say, and not everybody will agree with me. And I don't intend to offend to anybody who's listening, who strongly believes in God, but God is in everything and God is me, God is you, mm -hmm. God is free, God is the ground, God is everything being created in each moment. And that changed my, that, that put me on a whole different trajectory in terms of my, my life yeah. and the work I do now and, and how I live and my moment to moment experience. So my faith in God, for the first time in my life, I truly believe in God. Mm -hmm. That is mm. a gift. Beautiful. Yeah, I can buy that definition for sure. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story, Don. Um, You're welcome. I know it's I know it's it's always hard to uh, go back to our our story, but um, I think it's it's a wonderful and beautiful thing to share for other people to hear mm. how you found this source of of spaciousness and healing and love. Mm. So one of the things I ask everybody to prepare is a prayer or a poem or a blessing to end with. What have you got to share today? Well, I would like to share what I um, end every single yoga or meditation class with because this uh, it sits at the heart of the Buddhist practices I have been involved in through my whole life. And it sits at the heart of my practice morning and evening when I sit in meditation. Mm. So I would like to, to share that, the intentions that I set each day. So I would say, may all the beings in all the world be happy, healthy and free from suffering. May you be happy, healthy and free from suffering. May we all together be happy, healthy and free from suffering from my heart to your heart, with all compassion and love. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to Fucked Up by Faith with me, Jude Mills. Our music is by David Goodall and you can find the podcast on Spotify and all major podcast channels. If you would like to take part in the podcast or you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please do get in touch. You can do that via my website judemills.com forward slash podcast and I look forward to hearing from you. Go well.